our second lesson, and I need a mic. Our second lesson this morning is uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, 25 through 37. If you'd like to read along in your Pew Bibles, you can find it at page 54 of the New Testament section. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on by the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. But he, then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. This morning's parable is one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. Many of you could tell it almost word for word. A man was robbed and left for dead, a priest and a Levite pass right by, and a Samaritan stops and helps. The Samaritan, showing mercy, shows us how to be a neighbor. We should do likewise. That's probably how you learned it in Sunday school, and it's the basis of Good Samaritan Awards and the Good Sam Club for people with RVs. We should help people in need. Not a bad lesson, even if we do often feel guilty that we're not helping quite enough. But there's reason to think there's more to it. A parable is supposed to turn our current understanding of the way things work on its head. We're not supposed to read a parable and nod agreeably and think, yep, that's right. So what is it in this parable that turns things upside down? It starts with a question. This is one of many discussions Jesus had with religious executives and seminary professors. Those are the updated job descriptions suggested by William Sloan Coffin. And in these discussions, the religious executives and the seminary professors always seemed to end up on one side of the issue, while Jesus alone stood on the other, which is a sobering thought for anyone who works in this building or teaches across the street. The man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Inheriting eternal life is not just another way of saying, what must I do to go to heaven? 
We might translate this, what could I do to be really alive so that my life is not a life of death, but a life for life? The man is saying, show me the path to the life of God, or show me, as Brian McLaren puts it, the life of the ages, or a life to the full. Jesus knows this man's a lawyer, so he asks, what's the law? What does the law say? The lawyer gives Jesus an A-plus answer, quoting Deuteronomy and then the Leviticus passage that Dave Jones read. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus congratulates the man on giving the correct answer. Do this and you will live, he says. But the lawyer isn't satisfied. He wants specifics. Who is my neighbor, he asks, which, when you think about it, is the same as asking, who is not my neighbor? In other words, where does he draw the line? I mean, there has to be a line, right? Could Jesus really mean love everybody? Jesus answers with this familiar story. His listeners would know about this scary 20-mile stretch of road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was lined with giant boulders behind which robbers could hide, and it was full of hairpin turns as it dropped from 2,300 feet above sea level at Jerusalem down to about 1,300 feet below sea level at the Dead Sea. Four centuries later, the historian Jerome said that the road to Jericho was still being called the Red or Bloody Way. And as late as the 19th century, if you wanted to travel safely on that road to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem to Jericho, you paid off the local sheik. That might be why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. We don't have to assume that they were being callous. Stopping would have been risky. Maybe it would even be a trap. Jesus' listeners were also familiar with a Bible passage at Numbers 19.11, which says that he who touches a dead man is unclean for seven days. The man by the road appeared to be dead. Touching him could have meant that the priest or the Levite wouldn't be able to perform temple duties for a week. They didn't want to jeopardize their jobs, and many of us can relate to that. But the Samaritan stops. Not only that, but he bandages the man's wounds, anoints them with oil and wine, carries them to the nearest inn on his own animal, pays the innkeeper for the man's further care, and promises to return with more money if that's needed. So which of the three was a neighbor to the man who was robbed? Jesus asked the lawyer at the conclusion of the story. And the lawyer answers, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus concludes, go and do likewise. As I said, it's a good lesson, a great moral example. But what if Jesus' parable is more than an example story? What if it is a reversal story? A story intended to upset how we think about good and bad, or sacred and profane, or benefactor and recipient? If we too easily and comfortably hope to identify with the Good Samaritan in this parable, maybe we're missing the point. Maybe the whole point is that the Samaritan is not us. 
The last time I preached this passage was shortly after we'd put up our Black Lives Matter banner on the front of the sanctuary. I explained that the reason we did not hang up a banner that said, All Lives Matter, which is certainly just as true as Black Lives Matter, was the same reason that this parable in Luke isn't called the parable of the good person. Jesus chose a Samaritan as the hero of this story for a reason. Samaria was the next province over from Judea. The Samaritans were ethnically related to the Judeans, a mixed remnant left after Assyrian occupation. They practiced a similar but not identical religion. By the time Jesus told this parable, there was an entrenched and bitter hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. In John's Gospel, Jesus is passing through Samaria and asks a local woman for water. John tells us, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. To Jews, Samaritans were heretics. Samaria was a dangerous place. The truth is, they hated each other's guts. The third person to come upon the man by the side of the road could have been anybody. The point could have been, anybody can be your neighbor. And that's a nice broad principle Even if it doesn't specifically say that a Samaritan can be a Judean's neighbor, that would include it, right? Anybody would include a Samaritan. But the way this parable turns the world upside down is precisely that saying, a Samaritan is my neighbor, would stick in a Judean's throat. Anybody can be my neighbor, probably wouldn't. Anybody can be my neighbor is an abstract and feel-good idea that a Judean and anybody else can hold in his head without raising any specific prejudices. Yet Jesus says it was the Samaritan, the heretic, the enemy, the man of the wrong faith, the other, who did the right thing, while the two men of the right faith flunked. This story says a lot about our multi-faith nation and world, and in our neck of the woods, in Marin County, it says a lot about our no-faith world. Many faiths, maybe most faiths, including some versions of Christianity, try to claim that they corner the market on religious truth. It's the my God is bigger than your God syndrome, and too often it produces hostility That sense that anyone who is other is the enemy. And by other, I mean anyone belonging to a different group, a gender, orientation, party, religion, race, culture, creed, or country. Hostility makes a person or group willing, uh, unwilling to be a host. The two words, host and hostility, are actually related. The other must be turned away, kept at a distance, not welcomed, with hospitality as a guest or a friend. Seeing people as other or as not us can and has and continues to lead to hatred and violence. I spent part of my vacation in, uh, last month in Mexico City. We went to see the Diego Rivera murals at the Palacio Nacional. They are stunningly beautiful, but they're also heartbreaking. The murals depict the history of Mexico. 
in the, the lush and peaceful panels showing life and culture before the Spaniards arrived, Rivera tends to gloss over the fact that the indigenous people groups also treated each other as others to some extent. But I understand why Rivera did this because the violence and the exploitation, the dehumanization, destruction, and even genocide perpetrated by the Spaniards and Cortez is so over-the-top appalling that the murals showing Cortez made me weep. They are that much more heartbreaking because Cortez and Columbus and the English colonists to North America and all the rest of the Europeans who settled in this already occupied new world were Christians. Christians who justified their violence because the natives were other, not one of us. It's so tragic, it's so ironic, when love and compassion are the core of our faith, a faith based on the two great commandments to love, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Something deep within us tells us that this hostility, this us-against-them, this my-God-is-bigger-than-your-God syndrome, is part of the problem to overcome in the world, not the means by which our problems will be overcome. Religious hostility, us against them, is a symptom of the disease. It is not part of the cure. That is exactly what Jesus takes on with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Love, mercy, and compassion as opposed to seeing the other, as opposed to seeing all our contemporary versions of the Samaritan as threats to be feared or pitied, eliminated or refashioned in our image. The old religious language about saving or salvation, this is language that we tend to shy away from. This language of salvation and saving begins to make sense in this context. Jesus says, Do this and live. We will live. We will live the life of the ages. We will be saved from the dehumanizing effects of hostility if we can cherish our own religious traditions but abandon what Samir Salmanovic calls religious supremacy. We in the world will be saved from the disastrous effects of misguided, distorted, dysfunctional religion beginning with our own, religion that cares more about doctrinal purity than human kindness, religion that creates clans and tribes, us and them. It makes all that talk about repentance make more sense, too. If we don't repent, if we don't change our ways, if we don't give up our clannish hostility toward the other, we can expect not a fiery torture chamber after death, not hell, but a death trap in this life. War and hate, violence and fear, famine, disease, floods and drought, hunger, riots, refugee camps, and crime. Perhaps what Jesus meant as well is that the Samaritan actually represents all the ways God is already at work in the world, showing mercy where it is most needed, in unexpected places, and using profoundly unexpected people to do it. People who aren't us. People who are the other. Perhaps the Samaritan reminds us 
that we don't own God. No religion does. Our God is not our God. God is bigger and freer than we can imagine, so big and so free that God can work in and through people of other religions and people with no religion. And for us to believe otherwise, not only is arrogant, but dangerous. The Samaritans are a reminder to you and me, folks in the church, that maybe we should get over thinking it's all up to us and just start looking for the ways that God is already working in the world. Here at First Presbyterian Church, we've seen this up close and personal with 350 Marin, the folks who work with us on climate change, with the Marin Organizing Committee, a group of both religious and secular organizations working for the common good in Marin County, and Children for Change, a completely secular organization of local kids who are trying to change the world through service. I wonder if we just did all we could to catch up with where God is already at work in the world and joined in. Maybe we'd be doing exactly what Jesus calls us to do in this parable, even or especially when the one we are catching up with is Samaritan or Muslim or Latin American or Republican or Democrat or, well, you fill in the blank. Do this and live, says Jesus. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.